As an Afghan refugee living in Pakistan, you were able to land a scholarship and pursue an education in the United States, specifically rural Kentucky, where, surprisingly, you found common ground. You learned that with safety and security, one can truly reach their potential. And so you dream about going back and improving the lives of Afghans at home. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. A friend of mine was driving me. I didn't have a car in, in undergrad. And the f- first song that popped up on the radio was It's a Great Day to Be Alive by Travis Tritt. And I thought, this is fantastic. What an upbeat, good uh, good song. Uh, I think the line goes, there's some tough times in the neighborhood, but it's a great do- day to be alive. A uh, person does acknowledge that there are difficulties, but he's got rice cooking in the microwave and he has a three-day beard that he doesn't plan to shave and it's a great day to be alive. And that's how I was hooked on country because although people have certain opinions about country music, I think uh, the poetry and the milieu that it seeks, seeks to evoke speaks to a lot more artless, guideless, more fundamental aspects of human existence where it's the man, the truck, the bottle of beer, and that's about that. This week, learning to love country music, reading the signs in America, and VIP status at the Empire State Building. Join us on a journey from Afghanistan to Pakistan to Kentucky to Washington, D.C., on a path of understanding. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And that's what we call cultural exchange. My name is uh, Ahmad Shraja Jamal. My friends call me Shraja. That's what I'd like to go by. Um, I am a second-year public policy graduate student at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown. I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Georgetown Public Policy Review. I am from Afghanistan. I'm on a Fulbright. I was about six when my family left Afghanistan uh, because of the oncoming Taliban uh, taking over the country. A lot of people were um, displaced, and we moved over to Afghan uh, to Pakistan over the border. And I lived in the in the city of Quetta, and I lived there until about. When I was 19, I graduated from high school and I started looking around for opportunities to study outside of that particular context because refugee life can limit your options in in many, many different ways. And one of the things that I found out was that you could actually Google uh, for opportunities and I searched around and I looked at opportunities and I found that there's a school in Kentucky, United States that offers full scholarships to students from around the world. And they had an Afghan student, they had Zimbabwean students, they had other students from other parts of the world. And I thought, At first, I thought this is probably too good to be true. Maybe it's a scam, maybe it's not, but I decided to apply anyway. And when I received an acceptance letter, it wasn't really an acceptance letter. It was an acceptance email. And I thought this couldn't really be, uh, how do you know this is real? They also require you uh, for you to send a deposit. 
uh, before they can send you the I-20. And I thought, this is it. They're, they're taking my money and that's that. But I sent the deposit anyway because I read through their entire website page by page. I was, I was, I was really excited, A, that I got into a scholarship uh, program at the in the U.S., and B, that um, this was going to be my ticket outside of this refugee life that uh, had a lot of uh, dead ends that, that really limited your prospect as a person. So one of the things that you learn about America is, at least in the developing world, among people who are in the refugee community like I was, who don't have natural cultural ties with the U.S., such as Europe and the U.S., for example, where, where cross-border travel is easy. Um, you can come in and go out for work and for Christmas break, for holidays, things like that. If you don't have those kinds of natural connections and you live half a world away, you have a sense that America is really this shining city upon a hill, that everybody is just as well off as the rich people you see on the soap operas and on, on the movies. But I think one of the things that I, that I realized when I came to the US is that there's a range of, of people who live different kinds of lives in the US, and that there is a diversity not only of ethnicities and races, but also a diversity of uh, socioeconomic statuses. And I arrived here in 2007, which is near the tail end of the, the Bush administration, his tenure. Uh, and I thought, this is the most powerful nation in the world. The people must actually love their president and that here is a, a, a people that should be proud of the country that they have. I realized that the opinion on my college campus about the president was, in my experience, overwhelmingly negative. And this really took me aback because I thought, best country in the world, people should be proud of their president. But then it took me a while to realize that there is a diversity of opinion and that people do criticize their public leaders and that that criticism is is not just tolerated, it's actually mandated or, or it is a right under the, under the law, uh, under, under the Freedom of Expression Second Amendment, I suppose. And people really do take that seriously. Kentucky, Kentucky. Whenever I tell somebody that I went to undergrad in Kentucky, uh, they have this sense of, wow, Kentucky, really? And, and I always tell them, yes, really, Kentucky. And I tell them it was actually a great experience uh, because the college I went to accepted a lot of international students, but also it was in a town that was in a dry county, dry town, dry campus. And so somebody like me who came from a, a Afghanistan, Pakistan, wasn't really exposed to the same level of college life with fraternities and sororities in Kentucky than somebody elsewhere would have. And there was limitations to visiting dorms that were female versus them visiting male dorms. So a lot of that was, was different. But the one thing that really did struck out for me was, unlike the bureaucratic dysfunction where I had grown up and used to, everything on this college campus worked. You would go to an office for some paperwork, and you were pleasantly surprised that they actually approached it from making it work for you, as opposed to making you work for it. Wow, so the bureaucracy actually can be responsive and can be helpful. Growing up abroad, you come to the U.S., and you have this particular sense of what the U.S. is like, which is everybody's rich, everybody's, you know, well off and everything. But then you realize that this particular college that I went to, Berea College, takes in primarily, primarily takes in students from the Appalachian region, low-income students from the Appalachian region. 
When I came to the U.S., I thought, well, I grew up as a refugee from Afghanistan. I grew up in Pakistan. Uh, I probably have had a, a, a difficult life. But then some of the students at this college really that I met, that I, I got to know their their, their um, life stories, it really opened up my eyes to the many different ways people exist in the U.S. One particular student actually lived out of his car in the last six months of his high school. And he went to Berea, graduated, and ended up working at a very prestigious um, business consulting firm. So effectively, this college took a homeless person, gave them an education, and set them on a path towards a middle class or higher life. And the same thing it did to me. It took me out of a refugee existence, forced me to get a, a passport, and then a visa to the U.S. And now um, I've been able to contribute to my own country, but also hopefully um, to the broader uh, international community as well. Let me stay there forevermore. One of the people I met in Kentucky was a student, a female student, whose father was a trucker but also had a problem of alcohol abuse every once in a while. And so the, the student had started college in the fall, but she had a couple of bunnies still at home from high school. And one day she came up to me and she was crying. She was distraught. She was clearly very, very upset. And I asked her, what is, what, why are you so distressed? And she said, well, my father took a shotgun and he shot my bunnies. And my first reaction and in retrospect, I feel terrible about that, was to laugh at this. Because you're crying because your father shot your bunnies? Your bunnies? Are you serious? Uh, worse things happen to people. Why are you crying? But then, but then you have to understand that in this particular context, she has very strong emotional attachments to her bunnies. Um, and that in, a, in an otherwise turbulent family life, her bunnies and her pets were a source of uh, warmth and solace and that her father, her own father, had violently taken away the bunnies. So what that illustrated to me was that in my country, which has seen multiple decades of violence, what distresses people is very different from what in the US, in Kentucky, distresses somebody. Although the problems people face, first world problems, quote unquote, people face in the US are really not anywhere close to what people in some parts of the developing world face sometimes, but they are nonetheless real problems that really affect these people's lives in real ways. And I think that's one thing that I have, uh, that, I, that I learned early on uh, in my time in Kentucky. You can read a lot about American culture. You can read a lot about how it's different from your culture. Uh, but I had uh, eaten out with a friend my first few weeks at, at Berea. And I offered to spot him. And I paid about $15 or so for lunch for him. And then he promised to pay me back. Those, was, those were the days when Venmo didn't exist. And so a few days later, when he offered to pay back the $15, I said, no, out of politeness, which is how we do in my culture. No, you, you don't really have to pay me. You can keep it. And he said, are you sure? And I said, yes, yes, you can certainly, you know, keep the money. And it, because that's the polite way to do it in my culture. And what you're expected to receive in return is the other person insisting, no, out of politeness, take this money, please. 
uh, that didn't happen in this context. And so what I did was I actually didn't get that $15, which was not a lot of money, but it was one of those experiences where you're like, okay, this culture really is different. And what you've read about on the blogs and uh, advice columns, it really happens. So one of the first days I arrived at Kentucky, uh, in Kentucky at the college, um, my dorm room didn't have a fan. So another Afghan student who'd been there a few years ahead of me, he took me out to the Walmart for us to buy a fan. And so I enter what was a massive, massive row upon row upon row of things. And this was around 1 a.m., but there were still shoppers who had massive stacks of Coca-Cola filled you know, their shopping carts. It was unreal to me because back home, if you need a Coca-Cola, you go to the corner store, you get one Coca-Cola can or bottle and you come home. Here, this person had 24, 36, I don't forget how many. And for some reason, my friend was able to take us in this really massive multiple football field store to the precise place where we would find a fan. I had to later ask him, so how did you find, how did you know that the fan was in this particular place in a place as large as this? And he said, well, you just look at the signs. Where I come from, uh, the vast majority of people are illiterate. And so people don't really, even if you're literate, you don't really think to look at the signs. But that was one thing for me was to, in the US, just look at the signs. I come from uh, from Afghanistan. It's uh, it's been uh, in conflict for longer than my lifetime, and it continues to be in conflict, sadly. And so, social services and just social life in general is very much affected by the conflict that's going on. If you're eating out with your friends uh, or you're congregating outside of your house, you have to maintain a situational awareness of something might happen at any moment in this particular place that you're in. When you are in the U.S. There's a sort of a, a carefree disregard for that kind of situational awareness. You don't care about what might happen at any moment. So your mind is a lot more free to engage socially, to mindlessly scroll through your Facebook, to do any number of other things. Whereas in my country, you have to maintain situational awareness all the time. That hypervigilance basically eats up a lot of your bandwidth. Uh, that you could focus on other things. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of us would like to take back with us. But also, it's generally easier to come from a place of fewer freedoms to a place of many more freedoms. Uh, the ability to hang out, the ability to uh, use or not things such as alcohol, for example, which is forbidden in Afghanistan. And it's harder to go from a place of greater freedoms like this to a place of fewer freedoms because you have to now constrict a lot of things. The one thing that has been indispensable to me in the U.S., particularly in, during my grad program, has really been the friendships that I've made. Because as Afghanistan is going through really difficult times because of the escalating violence and the conflict, and you know that your friends and your family are going through difficult times and that you're helpless and distant from that. I think the friendships you form here really help you cope with some of that sense of uh, helpless isolation that you have. As long as I can get some Afghan food every once in a while, I'm okay. But I think I listen to music from that part of the world 
a lot more often, um, and I think that's something that's a, li- a lot more indispensable than food to me. I read poetry from that part of the world, and that's a lot more indispensable to me than uh, certain other aspects of our culture. And I think uh, those two things, poetry in Afghanistan is how you reason with people, right? As the poet says, is a legitimate form of argumentation. Uh, it's a legitimate form of social uh, interaction. You talk about, you cite poetry, you cite all kinds of these things. Uh, whereas in the U.S., I think it's it's not really like that. In the U.S., it's a lot more uh, A, therefore B, therefore C. Argumentation happens a lot more in along those lines. Um, and so people don't put poetry on their statuses in Facebook. In Afghanistan, they do it all the time. And, and I think that's the one aspect that I keep carrying with myself, which is the poetry from that region and the music from that region. Having grown up in Pakistan and not in my own country of Afghanistan, and having spent a number of formative years in the U.S., I think the term you learn in the U.S. is that you're a third culture kid. So you belong to a number of different places because you have experiences and social connections to those different places. You have multiple homes. At the same time, you're not as deeply rooted as somebody who's only spent in time in one place. Having said that, I think I do connect the idea of home with where my family is, which is my mother and my grandmother. And right now they are in Kabul, Afghanistan. I think everybody realizes that if you're in your own country, if you're, uh, you know, if you're in Mexico, if you're in the U.S., you identify at like everybody else. You identify from Kentucky versus the, ten, you know, Tennessee versus New York versus Minnesota. The same thing was with me that you, when you grow up in the community where you are, where everybody's like you, you're not really your first identity is not Afghan. But when you come to the U.S., one of the first things that happens at the port of entry is a check of your passport and that immediately connects you with your with your fundamental aspect of our identity in a different country which is afghan and so i'm a lot more afghan in the u.s than i am in afghanistan where i don't have to be afghan i don't have to assert that identity nobody's really asking me about that identity unless i'm at the airport and somebody at the check-in counter is, is is mistakenly identifying me as a foreigner which doesn't happen all the time but it does i've also been really fortunate that in the u.s I haven't really felt questioned. I think certain friends have had some experiences that they would classify as xenophobic. I've never had any of those experiences. On the contrary, I was working in the U.S. a few years ago. This was 2012, I suppose, I believe. I just walked out of my office, suit and tie, everything, and I walked into a sushi restaurant. And I was ordering, and the person started speaking to me in Japanese because I am from the Hazar ethnic community in Afghanistan, and we kind of look, quote, end quote, Asian, East Asian. That was the only time when somebody assumed anything about my identity uh, in the U.S. Generally, they don't do that. I think what I learned after coming to the U.S. was that I'm a lot more independent than I thought I was, right? living apart from your family in the tail end of your teenage years 
in the U.S., um, it becomes part of your formative experience. And you begin to behave like they do in the U.S. And you begin to take certain modes of behavior for granted and as natural uh, when you're in the U.S. And I never really experienced um, any kind of, oh, you're not an American, um, any sort of um, otherizing or any sort of being put in a category of non-American. In fact, when I went back to my country after about six years, in certain places in Afghanistan, people assumed I was a foreigner and not an Afghan because I had started carrying myself differently. And in official context, I had started speaking English with an accent that's closer to American. So they assumed I was an American. And in certain places like airports, where you do expect a lot of foreigners uh, in Kabul to be present, people waiting at the check-in line started assuming on more than one occasion that I'm not an Afghan. So in some ways, my time in the U.S. spent at a very, very formative uh, number of years, 1921-2004, really changed the way I carry myself, the way I behave, and the way I speak to, to the extent that in certain places like the airport started identifying me as a, a non-Afghan. So certain times it's actually very awkward. I was waiting uh, this one time uh, at the airport and it was a really long line at the check-in counter and it was not moving fast. So somebody, an Afghan standing behind me, tapped on my shoulder and I looked back and he said in English, not in Farsi or Pashto as we speak in Afghanistan, saying, I can't believe how slow this is. And I didn't know if I should respond in English, which is not the language we speak, or I should respond in Farsi or Pashto, which would then embarrass him. So all I did was I just smiled and I looked forward and I kept uh, keeping myself busy with my own things. It's not a pleasant experience. The community I come from, it's a minority community, and it's always uh, had some really rough experiences uh, in the hands of the regimes that have been in power. And so otherizing in that way is very unpleasant because it connects with that historic political experience of the community writ large uh, that makes it very unpleasant. Growing up, you learn about some of the some of the landmarks in the U.S., right? Especially if you're studying uh, English as a second language, you learn about the Golden Gate Bridge and you learn about the Statue of Liberty and the Empire State Building. So I learned about all of these things, and when I landed in New York in the in August of 2007, I stayed there for about three four days. I was living in a friend's apartment, and every day. I would walk out of that apartment and because I didn't have enough money to take the train, I actually walked all the way from near Columbia, which is uptown Manhattan, all the way to the rest of the town, downtown. So I, I made my way and I went to a part of the town that had what really surprised me, which was the Empire State Building. And outside of it, I saw a really long line of people waiting to go in. And I thought, well, this must be free, a free trip tour of the Empire State Building. I, and, I, and I wait for about 15 minutes until my turn arrives. There's somebody in the window that's saying, that would be $20, sir. And uh, it took me aback. And I thought, $20 for what? Uh, but it was it was a ticket to see the, 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 the building. And uh, I thought to myself, I've spent 15 minutes waiting for this thing. I've don't have enough money to even take a, the train to come downtown. 
but it would be probably very um, a impolite to say I don't have the money and walk away, and b this is your chance to see the Empire State Building. So I actually shelled that $20, went upstairs, took some photos, you know, saw the observation deck and came down. And A, felt very, very stupid because I hadn't realized that something that iconic with those many people waiting in line isn't necessarily free, even though there's 50 people waiting in line. It's actually a paid thing. But many, many years after when I graduated and I went home and I was working for an NGO in Afghanistan, a human rights NGO, that NGO was was headquartered in the Empire State Building. And I had the privilege of working out of the Empire State Building uh, approximately 10 years after that. So that became my office building. And when, when you work there, you can actually have a, a VIP pass to the observation deck. You can go there without paying anything or waiting in line. You can just go there and enjoy the view. Absolutely, more than that. Nobody in our family had graduated from college before. And here I was graduating from a college in the US, right? This was for the family and for me, uh, a pretty big deal. But my parents were not able to join me for a number of reasons, including visa restrictions. But a friend, an American friend that I had met back in 2001 in Quetta when I was a refugee and he was a reporter covering the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. But we'd kept in touch and his family came down from New York to Kentucky with his uh, then three-year-old son. That gave me a lot of solace. I thought, this is fantastic. Uh, I met him when I was 13. Uh, he was a reporter and now we're friends and I'm graduating and he's here visiting me on my big day. I thought that was, uh, that, that was a, a very pleasant experience. It was really good to have them around. Twenty-two-thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name is Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. Twenty-two-thirty-three is named for Title Twenty-Two, Chapter Thirty-Three of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Ahmad Shahju Jamal told us about his journey that ultimately led to his current Fulbright scholarship at Georgetown University. For more about the Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233, and you can do that wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Or check us out at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks this week to Shaju for sharing his story. I did the interview and edited this episode. Featured music was three songs by Poddington Bear, Bad Scene, Tralala, and Twilight Grandeur. And Kentucky by Sammy Kay and his orchestra. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came. And the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius.
Until next time.